Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. This is a podcast. We are not trying to fisk the New York Times like the NRA. Uh, I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. i uh, got a lot to cover this week, but before we get started, one quick disclaimer. Uh, we're recording a little bit earlier than usual. I usually try to record things on uh, mid to late Sunday to make sure we can get clips from the Sunday morning talk shows and any last-minute fuckery that happens to uh, take place. But we're doing it ahead of time. We will not have any news from Saturday or Sunday this prior week uh, because Saturday night I actually have a going-away party for a good friend of mine from undergrad. He's actually going to Harvard for graduate school. You know, So I don't know if any of you have uh, family, you mamas, you know, when you graduate from college, and like, oh, that's my baby. Like, this is one of my very good friends that I've known for 12 years now, long-ass time. Uh, his name is James. You know, we used to have a group in college that we were all in student government together, and the group of them were were called the Black Caucus, and then you had me as the token white guy that kind of hung out with them. Uh, my roommate Dave, if you could imagine Santa Claus, but black, uh, and then James is kind of like the Keebler elf, but black. You know, he's like four foot eight, somewhere thereabouts, but incredibly smart dude. When I ran for the state senate last year, uh, we put together a working group of teachers. He was actually a high school civics teacher over in uh, Wake County. And we put together a group of teachers to kind of inform me about how the, the intricacies of K-12 through work beyond just the, the high-profile stuff that you hear politicians talk about. And he was part of that group. So he will be going to Harvard for graduate school, uh, getting one of their uh, – Degrees in something. It's something education related. Uh, so if any of our listeners are up in, is it Boston? Cambridge? I don't know. Wherever the hell Harvard is, uh, keep an eye out for James. Make sure to take care of him. I'm going to try and get him on the podcast at some point, but I think we're going to wait until like the winter time because once it hits like October, November, it'll be snowing in New England, but here it'll still be like 70 degrees as we're at football games and whatnot. So we'll try and get him on the podcast in a few months and uh, get his take on some issues. But moral of the story, point of this disclaimer is that if any news drops after about 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, uh, just know that it's not going to be in this podcast. And I know stuff, we always miss things because it seems like clockwork every Monday we release the podcast and within like 20, 30 minutes I get a tweet from somebody saying, hey, did you see police killed this new person online or something? So just know now this is going to cover all of the news from basically last Sunday to now. Um, but we're not going to have anything from the weekend. So please make sure to join the conversation online if you haven't already. The Twitter account is at Fiskemall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. That's where we announce new shows and occasionally respond to listener feedback there. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at Greg underscore Doucette. That is G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. Uh, I'm on Twitter probably more than I sh- should be. Uh, but feel free to send me your comments, questions, story details there. Uh, we also have the website, fiskamall.com, as well as a Patreon page that is patreon.com slash fisk, slash F-S-C-K. Uh, if you have not already subscribed to the podcast, make sure to do that before this coming Thursday. We will have a special bonus episode. Uh, the patrons have got it already. They're going to have it for a couple more days, but then we're going to release it to the public this coming Thursday. Uh, that reminds me. So someone asked me to explain what the Patreon account was. So essentially, it's a website that is designed to help people that create stuff. You know, so if you go back to like medieval times, kings would pay for, you know, artists and musicians and whatnot. They would be the patrons and commission these works from these artists. Patreon is designed, that's their mission. They kind of do the same thing. So we set it up about a month ago, and basically it's how I pay for the expenses for the podcast. So for example, in July, we had to increase our storage space because the episodes had gotten longer and longer and longer, and our uh, our host, Blueberry, didn't have enough space for me to fit the uh, July 31st episode because you had five Mondays in the month, 
plus a bonus episode, plus the length was insane. Uh, so we went ahead and upgraded our storage, paid for that out of the Patreon proceeds. And then in exchange for your financial support, I try to give you all a little bit of bonus stuff. So uh, you can go in and everybody gets what I'm calling a legal word of the day. So I'm just kind of going through the alphabet A through Z and every day give you a new word from the legal dictionary and kind of what it means. We also do some bonus podcasts. So we had one uh, from the beginning of last month on canons of construction. We had one a couple weeks after that on... Oh, gosh, I don't even remember what it is. That's a sign of how many of these things we do. But there's a bonus episode of some kind. I think it's Trump's uh, pardon powers. I think it was, but don't quote me on that. And then we've got things that aren't really bonus episodes per se, but early access episodes. So like the one they got this past Thursday, uh, they get it for a week. Uh, We throw pictures of Samson up there. You can see, you know, the shenanigans that he's got going on. Uh, We also have a community of people. So, I mean, folks can leave comments on stories. They can talk to one another. Um, and that sort of thing. So that's what that's what that is all about. So if you want to check that out, you don't have to sign up to see it. It's patreon.com slash Fisk. And if you decide you want to support us, that's great. But even if you don't, we'll still keep releasing these podcasts every Monday. So that is that. Let's get into the political news. And this is a first. So we've had, you might remember last week, I said that this was not normal. We were not living in normal political times. And it's a highlight of how much stuff has happened that I actually had to go back myself and listen to last week's podcast to see what I had covered already, uh, because Anthony Scary Moocher, the former White House communications director, uh, is is the former communications director. He's been fired already. I just announced last Monday that he was going to be taking over for Sean Spicer. He is already gone. Um, wow. I mean, t- depending on how you slice it. He's either had the shortest tenure ever because he was fired 10 days after he was announced for the position. The previous shortest length for someone who wasn't an interim was 11 days. I guess a guy that uh, Reagan, I think, appointed resigned 11 days after his announcement because they found out he was a Nazi. Um, So if you look at it at that point, shortest tenure ever. If you look at it from his start date, he wasn't even officially supposed to start yet. So he was fired minus 14 days before he was set to begin. Like, that's an impressive flame out. Essentially, he came in, dropped the coordination to try and make sure that uh, Reince Priebus was fired as chief of staff, didn't expect General John Kelly to be Priebus's replacement, and Kelly had Scaramucci fired. Like, that's a, it's a fantastically impressive way to completely fuck up a dude's career. I mean, he sold his company to take this job, lost his wife. She divorced him because of him trying to get back into the White House. His kid was born, and rather than be at the hospital to see that, sent his wife a text saying congratulations, and then he got fired. Like, that's impressive. So to the man known affectionately as the Mooch, Anthony Scary Moocher, we offer you this tribute, sir. God damn. You got to be a stupid motherfucker to get fired on your day off. While we're on the topic of stupid motherfuckers, let's talk about our papaya potus, Gouda Gaddafi himself, Donald J. Trump, and how terrible he is as a negotiator. Uh, Washington Post or Politico somebody, I don't know who it is, and I'm sure the media is going to be mad at me for getting that wrong. Uh, someone got a, was it BuzzFeed? I don't know. I mean, we should probably find that out before we uh, before we drop this. Anyhow, Mike's going to do the uh, the research. But one of the media outlets got a full transcript of the Cheeto and Chiefs telephone calls with the um, the Mexican president, where he's basically just whining and trying to tell the president that the president of Mexico can't tell the press that Mexico won't pay for the wall because it's going to make him look bad. And he essentially, he rolls over like he's so bad at his job. Um, it's, it's impressive. Like it's kind of like scary moocher, you know, it's just something where you would expect somebody who has managed to build a career, achieve some degree of wealth that wasn't inherited. You would expect them to have at least you know, I don't want to use gender language here, but have some balls, you know what I mean? It's a spine of some kind. And there's no evidence at all that Donald Trump has that. He talks a fantastic game. He has these fucking rallies that people go to and yip yip yahoo talking about making America great again. But when you look at the transcripts of how he has actually dealt with foreign heads of state, the dude sucks. Like, he's atrociously bad. Um, so for our benefit, Coral Castro is taking a 17-day vacation this coming week, so hopefully we won't have to deal with his bullshit at all. 
Um, but it was it was funny because he said to somebody that the uh, the Mexican president had called him to say that people were not coming to America anymore because they knew they couldn't get past our southern border and it was such a high compliment. And then in a separate thing, he told somebody that the speech he gave to the Boy Scouts of America was, uh, they claimed the president of the Boy Scouts of America called him to say it was the greatest speech he's ever had. Uh, and that was on like the third. And then the next day at the press conference, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, whatever her name is, the replacement press secretary was like, oh yeah, neither of those calls happened. I wouldn't call that a lie though. Like what the fuck would you call it? So it's, man, the dude has got some kind of serious self-esteem issues that he feels compelled to fabricate this shit out of thin air all the damn time. Um, you know, you're the president. Act like you've been there before, you know? In the Department of Justice news, y'all might recall from a prior podcast that Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Beauregard, has been about as emasculated as you can possibly be, uh, constantly getting dragged by President Trump in public all the damn time. Well, I guess that's triggered Sessions trying to make sure that he stays in his job. So he's launched a bunch of shit that actually doesn't make any sense but plays well with the base. So he had three different things come out this uh, this week. First, they had this very serious press conference where he's announced that he's going to start trying to prosecute leakers, uh, including journalists. He's going to subpoena journalists and have them reveal their sources under threat of uh, being held in contempt of court. So fuck the First Amendment with that one. Then they announced in letters to Baltimore, Maryland, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Stockton, California, and San Bernardino, California, uh, now, these are all four cities that have been struggling with gun violence and violent crime in general. But Sessions has said that he's going to cut off uh, Department of Justice funding to them for fighting crime, cut off the federal funds that they're currently receiving if these cities don't do more to help with immigration enforcement. Like, consider for a moment how totally fucked up that is, that your federal government is willing to put American lives at risk. They're going to allow more of you to be killed if you live in Baltimore, Albuquerque, Stockton, or San Bernardino, unless the state and local police do the job you pay the federal government to do. Like that's, I don't understand how any of you can think Jeff Sessions is still a conservative. All right, he's not. He's a fucking authoritarian. He's a goddamn fascist. He's an absolutely terrible attorney general. And I can't wait for the day when he leaves public life because the man fucking sucks. He's willing to risk American lives. Donald J. Trump, who appointed him, is willing to risk American lives unless the state, which once upon a time was a sovereign goddamn entity, does what you pay the IRS tax money to do. Like, that's not how our system of government is supposed to be set up. So that's coming out of the DOJ. And then just a couple days ago, there's a report in the New York Times where they're going to tackle this grave problem of universities discriminating against white people. What the fuck? Like, I, I need a minute to figure out what the fuck I'm going to say to that, because that's one of the dumbest goddamn things that I've heard in a very long time. And I've heard some dumb shit in the course of doing this podcast for two months. But yes, the Department of Justice has announced that they're going to investigate universities uh, and their affirmative action policies because they discriminate against whites. Here's a couple things here. All right. One, that doesn't actually happen. All right. When I was at NC State, I was very involved in the student government, and it's a state school, so the, the concerns about racial discrimination were real. And I raised that as an issue. I was like, how do we deal with this? Is this a problem? How does our admissions policy work? And I actually got to sit in on an admissions committee meeting and get the details on how they go through applications. And it's how most schools go through applications. They look at your SAT score, and they look at your GPA or class rank, one of the two, each of those gets multiplied by a certain number, and those numbers added together become what's called your academic index. So multiply your SAT by a number, multiply your GPA by a number, add the two together, that becomes your academic index. Anything above an academic index, you're automatically accepted. Below a different academic index, you're automatically rejected. And if you're arranged in the middle, that's when they look at your other stuff, your admissions essays and everything else. Any college that tells you they consider the whole person is lying to you because they get so many applications, they can't feasibly do that. The academic index is the first differentiator between who gets in and who doesn't. But then for that group in the middle, 
in between the automatic acceptance and the automatic rejection, that's when they'll look at your letters of recommendation, your essays, and things of that nature, and they'll compute a different score, and it's the same routine. Above a certain number, those folks get acceptances. Below a certain number, those folks get rejections. And the folks that are still in the middle get the waitlist letters. You've been admitted, but only if other people choose not to come. So it's the folks in the middle that would receive any benefit from affirmative action anyway, because that's looking at the extra stuff aside from academic index. But out of all of those things, one of the biggest weights in that middle group is legacy fucking admissions. In other words, your mom, your grandma, your dad, your granddad, someone went to the university you're applying to. They give you extra points in the admission process for being a legacy admit. Well, guess who benefits from that? Fucking white people. Why? Because most of the universities in the country were segregated at one point or another, especially in the southeast. NC State was segregated by law. UNC Chapel Hill was segregated by law. So for you to get legacy admission, bonus points to get in, yes, some black people can get those bonus points nowadays because they've been admitting minorities for like 40 years, but they've been around since the 17 or 1800s. So the most beneficiaries getting that are white people. But then in addition, when you look at affirmative action and how it pans out, the beneficiaries are becoming white men because our academic profiles in high school are trash. If you look at people going to college, it's predominantly women nowadays. Women are outperforming men in the classroom, in middle school, in high school, in entrance exams. And they're the ones going to college in greater numbers. So affirmative action policies are already benefiting white men. So the notion that the Department of Justice is wasting your tax dollars on this stupid fucking investigation, all because you have a bunch of dumbasses who seem to think minorities go to college for free, and that's a problem. Even though it's a complete myth, totally debunked for decades on end. It's absurd to me that we've got an attorney general engaging in this shit. And the only reason it makes sense is that he wants to keep his job and knows Donald Trump is a fucking idiot, and by doing this, he'll win some points with the base. So while we're on the topic of the Department of Justice, let's go ahead and dive into the justice news for this past week. Big story from the Second Court of Appeals, the United States Circuit Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, uh, tossed out a case by 32-year-old Davino Watson. Uh, essentially, Watson was detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement back when he was 23, so this is uh, nine years ago, was held without a lawyer for three and a half years because there's no entitlement to have an attorney when you're a, an immigrant. And turns out Watson was a United States citizen. So he told a judge he was a citizen. He told the ICE officers he was a citizen. He actually provided uh, the paperwork showing that his parents were citizens, which made him a citizen automatically, uh, they finally released him three and a half years later. He was arrested in New York by ICE. Three and a half years later, they released him in Alabama with no money. He filed suit in New York. Eventually, a district court awarded him $82,000 for his three and a half year unauthorized detention. Well, the Circuit Court of Appeals has said no, that they're actually going to not let him have that money. They're going to dismiss his case entirely because they argue that the statute of limitations expired, claiming that the uh, time period for calculating that statute of limitations began the day he was detained by ICE, which means that the statute of limitations, which is the time after which you can't file a lawsuit, they're arguing that that time period ended while he was still in ICE custody, while he still did not have a lawyer, a United States citizen and taxpayer detained by your federal government, held incommunicado without a lawyer for three and a half years. A court of judges has said he is not allowed to sue because they held him long enough. Had they released him sooner, maybe he could sue. But since they held him for such a long time, he can't sue anymore. What the fuck? You know, I don't know whether I should be more amazed that these people on the Second Circuit have somehow become judges or that they think this decision makes sense. Number one, that's not how you calculate the statute of limitations for false imprisonment. All right, the statute of limitations, the clock starts when the false imprisonment ends, because otherwise you incentivize people to keep you falsely imprisoned until you can't sue them anymore. Like this is common fucking sense. But then this wouldn't even be an issue if you didn't have General Kelly at DHS or Jeff Sessions at DOJ 
going out of their goddamn way to arrest everyone with a Hispanic-sounding name. I mean, Davino Watson doesn't even sound like he's an immigrant, yet they went ahead and detained his ass anyway because they could. So that's out of the second court of appeals up in uh, New England. Hopefully the Supreme Court will intervene and fix that foolishness because that's fucking ridiculous. Uh, CJ Saramello. I finally figured out how to pronounce this guy's name, by the way. I just went ahead and tweeted him and asked him how to do it. So it's Sarah Mello. We've mentioned him before. Uh, but he's with Reason Magazine. He covered a district court decision by Judge George Stee, or Stay, however you pronounce it, out of the uh, Eastern District of Michigan, who has ruled that dogs are contraband, subject to extrajudicial summary execution without due process during a police raid. Uh, Nikita Smith and Kevin Thomas had three dogs, Debo, Smoke, and Mama. Uh, and their spot they were living in was raided by police because someone claimed they were selling marijuana for, out of the house. The police executed Debo at the front door. They found Smoke in the bathroom. Uh, they actually locked Smoke in the bathroom, but then somehow Smoke opened the door on his own. Bullshit. But they claim Smoke opened the door, so they decided to splatter Smoke's brains all over the bathroom. And then they went down into the basement and executed Mama on the stairs about 20 feet away. Now, the police office, the chief of the police department, concluded that everything was fine. Hadn't even talked to his officers before he did this, but cleared everything as being totally fine. Uh, and this case has been thrown out because the judge has decided that the dogs were contraband subject to being exterminated just fine. So puppy side is perfectly fine in Michigan. And if you go through the decision, I actually decided to click on the opinion and read it. One of the cases cited as precedent was out of the Sixth Circuit. It's Brown versus Battle Creek Police Department. You might recall back if uh, you were following me on Twitter back in December, we talked about the fact that that decision was going to make puppy side legal in the entire Sixth Circuit, and now it's being cited as precedent for police to exterminate three different dogs without repercussions. So that's going on up that way. Uh, a couple general research pieces. The Daily Beast and the James Madison Project uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act request relating to Trump's Muslim ban and how it was implemented. And among the documents they got back... They found out, well, before I get there, let me pause. So last week, you might recall, I had some comments about General John Kelly becoming the new chief of staff. Here's a clip. Priebus resigned as chief of staff on Thursday. Uh, the Twitter bots then claimed on Friday that, no, actually, he was fired, even though we all know that Donald Trump is a pansy and doesn't fire anybody. Uh, but either way... Priebus is now out as chief of staff. Former Secretary of Homeland Security General Kelly is resigning the Homeland Security ship to become chief of staff. Uh, everyone supposedly in the White House loves him. I don't trust the guy because back during the travel ban issue, uh, Kelly instructed Customs and Border Patrol to ignore court orders when courts were commanding that travelers be permitted to see their lawyers. I'm not a fan of people defying the courts, especially when they've got a former military background, but we'll see how it turns out. It's going to be Kelly's first foray into uh, raw politics as opposed to military politics. And of course, because this happens all the time in the political world, a bunch of Republicans who heard the podcast were like, oh my God, I can't believe you say you don't like General Kelly. He's such a good conservative, blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. All right. He can be an honorable man with a distinguished military career, but that doesn't mean he should be entrusted with civilian control of a goddamn thing. And this story out of the Daily Beast illustrates it because turns out General Kelly and had instructed his underlings not just to have Customs and Border Patrol keep people away from their lawyers, but also to keep Congress from exercising any kind of oversight power. They found out in these FOIA documents there is an email that says, quote, as stated on the call earlier today, you and your staff are not, in all capital letters, to engage with the media or congressional representatives at this time. Please make sure your subordinate port directors are following this direction. Please report any such requests to acting AC, which is the uh, assistant commissioner from Congressional Affairs. Thank you. To have an executive branch officer instructing anyone to not speak to Congress when Congress is trying to speak to them completely upends the entire design of our system of government. You go read the Constitution. Article 1 is not the executive branch, no matter what Donald Trump's lawyer tells you. Article 1 is for Congress. Their job is to exercise oversight. 
So this guy, like I said, I'm going to give him some latitude as chief of staff because I don't have a choice. No one's listening to me when I talk about whether or not he's trustworthy or not. But you've got a guy who's got some serious uh, judgment problems when it comes to how he conducted himself at the Department of Homeland Security. And this email basically just illustrates my point a couple days after I made it. So that is out of the Daily Beast and the James Madison Project. Uh, Mike.com has a detailed piece on bail policy and how bail destroys people's lives. Uh, We're going to have a discussion on that in one of the other podcasts this month. Uh, Byron Mobley, who is down in South Haven, Mississippi, uh, is one of our Law 140 lovers at the Patreon page and suggested we talk about this. So we're going to go into some detail on it, on what bail is, what its purpose is. But Mike.com has this great story on how just being in jail for a few days, uh, even if you're never convicted of something, that time where you get uprooted from your life can cause a snowball effect and just really fuck up a lot. Uh, The Associated Press has a story on parole covering teenagers who are charged with offenses where they get life without the possibility of parole, so like a 15-year-old that kills somebody. And turns out, how we deal with that varies pretty wildly across the country. You have some 15-year-olds who serve 20, 25 years and they're released. You have some who you know, commit crimes at 13 or 14 that are still in jail in their 70s because that's how it's set up. Um, it's a very sobering piece because you got to admit, as kids, we do a lot of stupid things. Now, sometimes those things have grave consequences. Like if you kill somebody, I get it. Uh, But the fact that we just kind of lock you up and throw away the key, no matter how many decades you continue to live, um, there hits a point where you got to question whether or not that's a just punishment. So I will link that to you in the show notes. The Washington Post has a fantastic database that they have released uh, called Fired Slash Rehired, where essentially you've, you've heard before that the police don't really track things like officer terminations because of, you know, killing someone when they shouldn't. There's no reporting requirement for the federal government or the state government to keep all of that stuff. So what the Washington Post did was they sent public records requests uh, to the biggest departments in the country. Some of them replied back and they put together this database of officers. And what it shows is that since 2006, so roughly a little bit less than 10 years because the the FOIA stuff doesn't go all the way up to 2017, uh, but at least, at least 1,881 police officers have been fired, and that's just from the 37 largest um, departments. So they've, they've got circumstances on why that word, you know, you have police killing unarmed people, you have other police that are sexually assaulting teenagers. Well, out of that 1,881, there are at least 451 of those who got their jobs back in the same department. So that's a 24% you know, you get uh, discharged, you appeal, you come back. One out of four of, of, of every officer who's been fired for some form of malfeasance is back on the job. And that doesn't even count the officers who ended up going to other departments that's been covered by folks like Radley Balco and several others. Uh, so this is now a new database out by the Washington Post. I hope you will check that out. So let's go through the state-by-state news. This week what we're going to do is we're going to do states by population. So we'll start with the biggest states first and then go down. Uh, In the past, we've done it alphabetically, and before we've done it kind of geographically. I'm going to try and come up with a new way of doing it each week. We're going to recycle them eventually, of course. But for this week, we're going to start with the biggest and go to the smallest. Out of California, uh, the Today Show did a profile on Casey Bowden and other marijuana moms talking about how smoking weed makes them better parents. It's not really a criminal justice piece. I'm not even really that mad about it. But what struck me is how when it's a a white mom smoking weed, that makes her cooler. But when it was the black guy, Philando Castile, who hadn't actually been smoking weed, but the officer who killed him claimed he was, that suddenly becomes justification for shooting the man. uh, Because I think Yanez, Officer Yanez out of uh, Milwaukee, Um, or Minneapolis, wherever the fuck it was, Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, had said something to the effect of, well, you know, since he was going to smoke weed in front of his baby girl that made him a threat, why was he going to care about me? And yet here, just, you know, a month or two after his acquittal, you've got the media talking about how great it is that white moms smoke, giving them high profiles on the Today Show. 
uh, I ended up tweeting about it, just kind of a comparison of two sets of tweets. One was the Today Show story. The other was the quote from uh, Officer Yanis himself. And it ended up getting spread around a little bit. But it's uh, it just kind of blows my mind that you can have that type of disparity and no one really notices it. Um, Kern County, the Kern County DA has dropped all charges against Tatiana Hargrove. You might recall her from a couple podcasts back. Uh, this was the petite 19 year old black girl with hair that the police claim they mistook for a tall, large, bald black guy. Uh, they ended up stopping her, having the canine snack on her arm and face, arrested her, charged her with resisting arrest, even though she had done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, all charges against her have been dropped. So that is in Kern County. Oh, that reminds me, before I forget, I should have covered this earlier. So Procter & Gamble released an advertisement on the web. It's like two minutes long. And it's a, a sequence of black parents talking to their kids about racism, about the use of the N-word, about being discriminated against and everything else. It's a fairly well-done ad, and white people lost their shit. Like, you go look at some of the comments on Republican websites, and they've completely lost it, talking about Procter & Gamble is claiming all white people are racist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, you incompetent motherfuckers. That ad is for shit like this, where you can send your 19-year-old daughter to the fucking grocery store to buy some groceries and on her way back she gets mauled by a goddamn police canine because the stupid fucking government employees that your tax dollars pay can't tell a petite black girl from a grown-ass bald guy that's the type of shit that that ad is addressing how the fuck do you not get it at this point when it goes on every single goddamn day get your head out of your ass jesus christ so that's in california uh, over in texas the Intercept has a story on this new show me your papers law that Governor Abbott has signed to try and stop sanctuary cities. Turns out that as a result of that, the law hasn't even taken an effect yet. It's just been signed. But what's happening is that there's been a very large drop in calls from Hispanic people to police because they're afraid they're going to get deported. It's no different than uh, what we talked about last week, where when police are brutalizing black folks, black people don't call the police, this same law is going to have the same effect in Texas. You're emboldening criminals by discouraging people from contacting law enforcement because you're so goddamn concerned that someone somewhere might take a fucking job that you're not willing to take anyway. And even if you are, you probably got an opioid addiction that's going to stop you from having it. So that's happening down there. Uh, also, the Houston Independent School District had a police officer, Jacob Ryan Delgadillo, who is 30 years old. Turns out he fondled a 14-year-old student, had her give him a blowjob. This guy's sentence got announced. You'll never guess. Uh, he got a deferred prosecution agreement. So he's going to be on probation for five years. And after that five-year period, if he doesn't commit any more crimes, his case gets dismissed in its entirety. He will have no criminal record, will not have to register as a sex offender, even though he committed statutory rape with a child that he was paid by your tax money to protect at the Houston Independent School District. So that's going on in Texas. Uh, over in New York, the New York Police Department in Brooklyn uh, were looking for a black man in a white shirt with braids carrying a gun, but trying to find someone that matches the description is hard work, so instead they just found the nearest black guy who had braids, never mind the fact that he was in a yellow shirt, driving as a, uh, riding in a passenger as a car, didn't have a gun on him. They decided to beat him anyway. Turns out that this was caught on mobile video because first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do them shit even when they are on camera. So they arrested Jakeem Alexander, punched him in the face, even though he was face down on the ground with his hands behind his back, uh, ended up forcing the guy out of this uh, Uber from an unmarked car. Like they, they're not even obviously police. Pull this Uber over, pull Alexander out of the passenger seat, place him under arrest, beat him in the process and then release him uh, the next block up with a summons for disorderly conduct just because he happened to have braids. He's a black guy with braids. was not the guy they were looking for. So that's going on in New York. In my home state of North Carolina, we've got a lot of shit going on here. Down in Onslow County, which is where Jacksonville, North Carolina is, the sheriff there has lost his fucking mind. So there's this high-profile story going on. There's a sheriff's deputy, William Clifton, who was killed. Uh, turns out, he was a school resource officer 
you know, I hate that we call these people SROs. They're police. They're bona fide police. They go through uh, basic law enforcement training. They're deputized. You know, everything they got to do, they get a badge, a gun. They can place you under arrest. They're full-blown police in schools. Uh, this Clifton cat found a 12-year-old girl, Caitlin Ridgway, uh, and started dating her for years. I use dating in quotes. He's basically raping this woman on a pretty regular basis. Uh, ended up last year, or uh, the year before, when she was 16, uh, Ridgeway's stepfather, who was also an Onslow County Sheriff's deputy, filed a request for a what's called a 50B domestic violence restraining order here in North Carolina was given that by the court as part of the allegations made to the court. Turns out that uh, this deputy, William Clifton, was contacting her even after Internal Affairs was notified, told him to leave this teenage girl alone, was continuing to contact her anyway. So anyhow, Clifton's been killed. He was killed in a park. A boy was arrested who's 18 years old. Ridgeway was arrested who is now 18 years old as well. And this has become a major story down in Jacksonville because there's allegations that the sheriff's department tried to cover up the fact that Deputy William Clifton is both a pedophile and a rapist. Well, the sheriff, Hans Miller, decided to post on Facebook a quote that is purportedly from Socrates. The quote itself says, quote, when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. And then in his post that is including this image, the sheriff has written, and there will be consequences. So let's talk about some things here. Consequences, what the fuck does that mean? What are you going to do? You're going to go ahead and abuse your power to try and have some people arrested or attacked or disappeared because of the fact you helped cover up one of your deputies as a rapist pedophile? But then on top of that, why would you post something from Socrates who was known to like fucking teenagers? Now, let's bear in mind, Socrates didn't actually give that quote, by the way. That's one of those internet things where people say a random thing and then attach someone else's name to it to pretend like it's got some legitimacy to it. But what the fuck is this guy talking about? You know, it, I don't live in Onslow County, thank God. But if I did, there needs to be someone running for sheriff in the next election cycle to have this clown show fuck removed from office. So that's in Onslow County. Uh, down in Greensboro slash Orange County, depending on where you want it to be, the Republican Party chairman, Robin Hayes, who's a fucking geriatric incompetent, uh, decided to condemn an anarchist for refusing to cooperate with a federal grand jury. Now, those of you who are on Twitter might recall back during the election around October, the Republican Party headquarters in uh, Orange County, which is one of the most Democrat counties in the entire state. You know, Durham, where I live, is the bluest county we have. Orange is right next door. They're the second bluest. You got to go all the way out to Asheville and Buncombe County to get to the third bluest. Um, someone threw a firebomb, Molotov cocktail, whatever it was, into the uh, headquarters and damaged it pretty severely. And there was a lot of, I, I joked at the time that I thought it was an inside job because if you're going to torch a headquarters, you don't torch it in an irrelevant county. Like no Republican is ever going to get elected in Orange County. You know, if you wanted to firebomb something, it would make sense to do it, you know, in a, in a swing area where it mattered. Um, so the, the, case is still unsolved. They don't know who actually did it. The police suspect that it's a local anarchist group, which wouldn't surprise me because anarchists are fucking stupid. Of course, they're going to firebomb a, a party headquarters in a place where it's not going to matter. Well, this one particular anarchist, Katie Yao, was subpoenaed to testify before a federal investigative grand jury, which we're going to talk about a bit more in our Law 140 segment about how grand juries work. But she showed up and gave a speech outside of the courthouse saying that she's going to refuse. And the NC GOP chairman, Robin Hayes, who was conscripted to be chair after the party establishment ousted the guy the grassroots elected. We had elected a chairman, Hassan Harnett, our first ever African-American chairman, by the way. And you have a bunch of these establishment types who basically conspired to have him impeached and removed from office just a couple months in his tenure because Harnett had these radical ideas like trying to make sure that the state convention was cheap enough that party activists could afford to attend. Anyhow, so Robin Hayes, former congressman brought in to be the chairman, released a statement saying, quote, the NCGOP absolutely condemns anyone refusing to cooperate with investigators regarding the political terrorist firebombing of the Orange County GOP office. It is inappropriate to discuss the actions of a federal grand jury, and anybody who refuses to comply with a lawful subpoena in this case should be incarcerated until they do. Holy shit. 
Evidently, Robbins never actually read the Bill of Rights and the fact that more than half of the amendments that are there exist to enable you to not cooperate with investigators. It's not your fucking job to do the police's job for them. You are under no obligation to testify to a grand jury. If nothing else, you have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. So here we have the Republican Party of North Carolina standing on the side of the pro-government authoritarian forces. Over in Arizona, former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio has been found guilty of criminal contempt. Uh, he had been previously ordered to stop doing roundups of immigrants, and the judge, uh, Arpaio rather, basically told the judge to fuck off. So another federal judge said, hey, you're in violation of this order. I'm holding you in contempt, and he may end up going to jail. How do I know he might end up going to jail? Because I've gotten a zillion fucking fundraising emails in the past two, three days, claim, you know, begging for more money, clamoring for more money for uh, Sheriff Joe. Fuck him, and I hope he gets a chance to enjoy the prisons that he's been uh, abusing people for so long in. In Massachusetts... Former ADA Dylan Hare has a column on reforming the justice system when DAs have all the power. You know, something we've talked about before where training matters. You need to have district attorneys who understand their job is to do actual justice, not just you know rack up convictions. Um, so he's got a column out. I'll link that to you. Over in Tennessee, video has been released of jailers torturing an 18-year-old. Uh, 18-year-old Jordan Elias Norris is in a restraint chair. His arms and his legs are restrained with belts, so he can't move. Another deputy has a gag in his mouth, and a jailer is tasing this kid repeatedly. He was tased 40 times. Uh, the jailer at one point says, I'm going to keep doing that until I run out of batteries. And of course, this is all on the security video because, again, first rule of fisk, police, including jailers, will continue to do them shit even when they're being recorded. So that is in Cheatham County, Tennessee. Uh, over in Greenwood, Indiana, Alkermes, I think is the name of it. It's a company that makes a drug to combat opioid addiction. And the way they're getting people to use this drug is by marketing it to judges. They actually have a sales representative, a sales representative sitting in with the court's kind of treatment teams that, that discuss ways to address people who are addicted to drugs. They have a sales rep from a pharmaceutical company in there to talk to them about the importance of forcing people to use this particular medication. Holy shit, that's fucking ridiculous. So that is going on over there. In Missouri, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People has issued their first ever travel advisory for an entire state, and they've issued it for Missouri. Uh, in the story, says, quote, Missouri became the first because of recent legislation making discrimination lawsuits harder to win in response to longtime racial disparities in traffic enforcement and a spate of incidents cited as examples of harm coming to minority residents and visitors, including racial slurs against black students at the University of Missouri and the death earlier this year of 28-year-old Tory Sanders, a black man from Tennessee who took a wrong turn while traveling and died in a southeast Missouri jail, even though he had never been accused of a crime. Quote, how do you come to Missouri, run out of gas, and find yourself dead in a jail cell when you haven't broken any laws? Asked Rod Chappell, the president of the Missouri NAACP. Good-ass question. Now, the challenge is, it's not just people shouldn't travel to Missouri. you got to figure out how to save the people that are living there because their government is going to continue abusing them uh, you know, without any consequence until some kind of reforms take place. So in Maryland, <laughs> Maryland, Jesus Christ. So the Baltimore City Police have been caught again, again, planning drugs. This time it was in a car. You might recall from the podcast last week, we mentioned 34 cases had been dismissed because in the podcast the week before that, found out they had been planning drugs in an abandoned lot. Uh, this time they were on body cam planning drugs in a car and had a guy arrested for drug possession. Um, the police chief, and you know, here's the part that blows my mind. The police chief has essentially said, eh, you know, it's okay. We're going to let it ride. Even though people have gone to jail, they have been locked up. They have been held for crimes that they didn't commit, that the police actively fabricated. So that is going on in the city, in the county, Baltimore County, Police summarily executed 35-year-old Christopher Evan Clapp for shoplifting. Uh, he is a guy from North Carolina. And I want you to listen to the story here 
and, and think for a minute about whether or not this story makes logical sense based on how things work and the rules of physics. Uh, police say an officer went up to Mr. Clapp's car and Clapp then put the gear in drive and, and this is a quote, by the way, Clapp put the gear in drive and ultimately dragged the officer with his vehicle. Officer McCain then drew his service weapon and fired into the vehicle, killing Clapp and stopping the vehicle. The officer wasn't injured. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been dragged by a car, but here's the thing. If you haven't been injured, you weren't really dragged. That means you were walking beside the car. The car couldn't have been going very fast. It wasn't a danger to you. But if you're being dragged by a vehicle and you still have the ability to pull your weapon and fire it into the car and you avoid injury, you weren't really getting dragged by the car. This guy just wanted to kill a guy for shoplifting because that's how we're training police these days, that everyone can be exterminated and it's totally fine. So that is out of Baltimore County. Uh, oh, coincidence, Officer McCain wasn't wearing a body camera. Surprise, why would he? You can't kill people with impunity if you've got body cameras. Um, so that's going to be going on. They're going to look at surveillance video and see if everything was fine. I assure you the police will claim this was all on the up and up because that's how shit goes nowadays. Uh, in Gaithersburg, Maryland, 19-year-old Lisandro Claros Saravia went to ICE as part of a regular check-in uh, because he is an undocumented immigrant, so he's been keeping in touch with Immigration and Customs Enforcement regularly, uh, went to let them know that he'd been offered a full-ride scholarship to Lewisburg College here in North Carolina. So ICE decided the most appropriate thing to do when you have a young scholar with a full-ride scholarship is to put them on a plane and deport them to El Salvador. So he has been kicked out of the country with his brother because he committed the grievous offense of wanting to get a college degree. So that is in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Over in Minnesota, there is a follow-up story in Minneapolis about now a bunch of white folks are in favor of police reform after police happened to kill the Australian lady, Justine Damon. So I'll give you that story in the show notes. In Alabama, in a story that really just... This is a very Alabama-esque story, I'll put it that way. Uh, Twelve inmates from the Walker County Jail escaped briefly because they covered a door's number with peanut butter. They somehow used peanut butter to cover the numbers to this particular door. A jailer, I guess, thought that because there was no number over top that that was an inmate's cell and opened the door, and it turned out that was actually the door to go outside. So these guys went outside, climbed a barbed wire fence, and escaped, and 11 of them have been recaptured within 24 hours. The 12th is still missing because these guys used peanut butter, and somehow that was enough to fool a jailer. So that was in Alabama. In Louisiana, the Esterwood Police Department Assistant Chief, Wayne Welsh, saw a meme on Facebook that he just thought was the funniest damn thing in the world. It's an old comic picture of a woman drowning her baby, and the caption reads, when your daughter's first crush is a little Negro boy. He just thought that was hilarious. Let's go ahead and kill our daughters for loving black kids. Uh, unsurprisingly, his post went viral. He has since resigned and apologized and insisted that's not who he really is. Bull fucking shit. If it's not who you are, you wouldn't have shared it in the first place, you incompetent motherfucker. So that's going on down in Louisiana. Uh, over in Kentucky, a former Louisville Metro police officer, uh, Mackenzie Mattingly, uh, summarily executed Michael Newby back in 2004, and it was so egregious that a jury actually, uh, the city paid $250,000 as part of the lawsuit that took place. Uh, Mattingly left the force in disgrace, but now here we are 13 years later. He's been working for another police department this entire time, wants to come back as a lateral hire. So we'll see how that turns out. That is in Louisville. The chief claims that he will never hire him, but we'll kind of see these things have a way of magically happening behind the scenes when the media is not looking. Uh, over in Oregon, the Portland Police Bureau Lieutenant Craig Morgan told their Citizen Review Committee that it's totally cool for police to beat the shit out of people if they think they're non-compliant. He says, quote, the reality is punching 
causing a short, hopefully non-enduring pain elsewhere to somebody can cause them to focus their mental energies on that area, which will in turn lower the resistance to the arm they're trying to get out. And that's what happened in this case. The case he was referring to was a man who was face down on the pavement, had one arm behind his back in a cuff. The other arm was on his belly underneath his body. As police are on top of him with their knees in his back, complaining that he's not moving the arm, that he can't physically move because he's got multiple police officers on top of him. So there's video of police repeatedly punching this guy in the face to try and get his arm out from underneath him when it's the police's own damn fault that he couldn't move his fucking arm. So that's going on in Oregon, Portland police or, or something else. So our smallest state in the group, New Mexico, in Estancia, Core Civic, which was formerly known as Corrections Corporation of America, has threatened to close the Torrance County Detention Facility unless they can somehow find a way to um, get 300 state or federal inmates to fill empty beds within the next 60 days. If you don't arrest more people, we're going to close. How fucking ridiculous is that? Now, you might remember the name Corrections Corporation of America because John Oliver and the folks on Last Week Tonight did a hilarious, uh, somewhat macabre, but still funny, segment on them and how fucked up they are. So because of that, that affected their ability to uh, con other states into contracting with them. So they've now changed their name to Core Civic, and they're essentially threatening to lay off 200 people unless the state can find them 300 inmates. You know, this is this is so fucked. Private prisons and General, I'm a very free market guy. I believe that the government should do as little as heavenly possible, but there is nothing at all conservative about your business model being contingent on the government locking people up. That's not conservative, right? That's the exact fucking opposite of conservative. There's no free market to asking the state to arrest, prosecute, and convict people so that you can then make money contracting with the state to have them locked up. It's fucking ridiculous. So what I would say to the folks over in Estancia, New Mexico, pray that your city council has the spine to tell CoreCivic to fuck off. Have the prison closed. Have the state fucking take it over if they need to. You know, and tell them to stop trying to hold you hostage and blaming their woes on the fact that the police aren't abusing citizens enough. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up for the news just this past week. Even though it's an abbreviated week, you might notice we're still at nearly a fucking hour of fucking bullshit. Uh, let's go ahead and segue into our Law 140 topic for this week, which is going to be grand juries and how grand juries operate. So one of the big stories in the political news this week that we didn't cover in the political part because I knew we had this Law 140 coming up was that Bob Mueller, the former head of the FBI who uh, served as FBI director under both uh, George W. Bush as well as Barack Obama, uh, he's running the Russia investigation as a special counsel. It was announced that he had convened a grand jury in Washington, D.C. This was seen as a big deal, uh, a sign that the Russian investigation was kicking into high gear. And that, of course, caused much consternation and gnashing of teeth among the supporters of the Yapping Yam. Uh, because they're concerned that theoretically people are going to try and have him disciplined in some way, even though we all know that it's never going to happen. I mean, Trump is not going to be impeached. He will continue fucking up for at least another three and a half years. Um, but that raised the question, what is a grand jury? What does it do? Why does it matter? So we're going to go over that. But before we do, I got to give you a reminder that our system of government has a lot of stuff that we pretend works a certain way philosophically in the courtroom, in judicial opinions, that in practice is not at all how they actually operate. And grand juries are one of those things. So a grand jury exists at common law, something that predated our Constitution. It's actually part of the Fifth Amendment. You might recall during our podcast last week, I read that piece of it. Uh, the Fifth Amendment says, quote, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. So that covers, in most states, the felonies. Any kind of important, high-level felony, uh, usually there's an indictment by a grand jury. 
Um, what constitutes an infamous crime varies. You know, it's not unusual to see some felonies start in a district court as opposed to a superior court. But it, when we get into that, you have to distinguish between the two types of juries themselves. So you have the grand jury that we're going to talk about, and you have what is a trial jury or a petit jury. So not petty, P-E-T-T-Y, but petit without the E, P-E-T-I-T. Um, the trial juries, their job is to determine the facts in a trial. If certain facts have taken place, certain elements of an offense have been met, they determine guilt or innocence. Each case will have its own trial jury. A grand jury, the, the actual mechanics vary by district, by state. Uh, even among like the federal government, which is fairly uniform, you'll have different variations among the individual United States districts. Uh, but essentially, it's a term of typically a year, sometimes two or more, of the same people who are your grand jurors for that entire term. And there are, so you have two types of juries, you have the trial jury and the grand jury. And then within the grand jury, they serve two different functions. So the function mentioned in the Fifth Amendment is what's called an accusatory grand jury. Their job is to determine whether or not there actually is probable cause for the government to file charges against somebody. Um, one of the uh, great tomes that we talk about uh, in a lot of law stuff is this Federal Practice and Procedure by Professor Charles Wright, who was a, uh, a Yale Law School graduate, went on to be a professor of law at the, uh, I think it was University of Texas. Don't quote me on that. Some of you that might know better than me. Um, but essentially, he was one of the guys that worked as a consultant to the lawyers representing Nixon during the Watergate years. Uh, very influential legal scholar, wrote a book on federal practice that is still, uh, you know, he passed away like ages ago before I even dropped out of college the first time. I think it was like back in 2000. Um, but he created this very influential book on federal practice and procedure together with uh, another professor. And one of the things he says in that book um, is that the purpose of a grand jury, the grand jury's principal function is to determine whether or not there is probable cause to believe that one or more persons committed an offense within a venue uh, under the aegis of the court. The job of the jury, the grand jury, has but two functions: to indict, or in the alternative, to return what is called a no bill or not an indictment. Um, so that is from the Federal Practice and Procedure uh, Criminal Section, Section 110. Now, that sounds like an important job. It's almost like they're designed to be a buffer between the accusatory power of the government and you. They have to determine whether or not probable cause actually exists. Yet most of you have probably heard the phrase that a prosecutor can convince a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich, and that's only slightly an exaggeration. The reality is most grand jurors don't particularly care about whether or not there's enough evidence to be there for the case to proceed. They just kind of do what the prosecutor wants. The few jurors who do ask questions tend to ask questions about irrelevant-ass topics that have absolutely no bearing on the elements of the case. And in practice, the information that the prosecutor gives the grand jury is so fucking vague anyway that even if they wanted to ask relevant questions, they wouldn't know how or what to ask about. You know, I'll give you a link in the show notes to the prosecutor's manual that U.S. attorneys have. It's available for free online. Everyone can read through it. There's a whole section on grand juries and how they're supposed to work. But it's one of those things where what we have written in terms of how the law is supposed to work and how it actually works are two very different things. Now, the question often comes up, well, if the grand jury is not going to do in practice what we pretend that it does in law, why do we continue insisting to pretend that it does those things? And the reality is it enables the courts to avoid having difficult discussions about how fucked our system is. And I'll give you a recent example. So the Supreme Court considered a decision fairly recently. Um, I want to say this was, this was either right while I was in law school or right after. Hang on, let me pull it up. Um, Cayley versus United States. So this was right after I graduated. Um, it was argued in 2013. The decision was handed down in 2014. And it was a case centering around civil asset forfeiture, which we've talked about in prior podcasts and on Twitter, essentially where the government takes your property 
and the burden is on you to prove that that property was not used in a crime. Now, one of the questions that is raised is, well, if you have had your property taken, how do you afford to pay an attorney to defend you? And that was part of the issue in Cayley v. U.S. A grand jury had issued an indictment finding, as we mentioned, that there's probable cause that a crime was committed. Their assets were seized as part of civil asset forfeiture, relying on that grand jury indictment. And Kaylee uh, argued that, hey, that's not fair. I can't hire a lawyer of my choice to defend me. I'm stuck having to use a federal public defender. Um, what gives? And the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 decision that scrambled kind of the traditional uh, political lines, it's something where you had uh, Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, and Justice Kennedy from the supposed conservative wing, um, and Justice Alito, I'm sorry. So Scalia, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. Kennedy is kind of in the middle. But then you also had Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan, who were from the liberal side. Uh, 6-3 decision, and then in dissent, you had Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Breyer, and Justice Sotomayor. The majority ruled that because the grand jury found a probable cause, and probable cause is all that's needed to uh, keep the assets. Because remember, when your assets are taken, the burden is on you to prove by a preponderance that it was not used in a crime. So preponderance and probable cause are not the exact same thing, but in practice, they're functionally the same thing. Uh, just one is used for criminal, one is used for civil. But it's still more likely than not that kind of if you're if you're playing football, you get just over midfield. But what they said was that because the grand jury is nominally they didn't say nominally, I'm saying nominally, because the grand jury is independent and they exercise this independent check on prosecutors by virtue of giving this totally independent uh, confirmation that yes, there is probable cause to issue this indictment, that that's good enough to take and keep all of Kaylee's assets uh, that they would use to pay a private attorney to defend themselves in court. Uh, it's very tautological. You know, it's it's uh, Scott Greenfield, who's a criminal defense attorney in New England. He's out of Massachusetts, I want to say. Um, had a tweet out that I'll find. Here it is. Indictment equals probable cause. Forfeiture equals probable cause. Therefore, indictment equals forfeiture. But essentially, uh, because the grand jury says probable cause is fine, the grand jury is supposedly independent, that's good enough to keep your money. It's a ridiculous decision that has terrible practical effects, but our government insists on maintaining this fantasy because it enables them to not discuss kind of the mechanics of our Constitution and how it operates, you know, because if it's something where the grand jury system is broken, that then inevitably raises the question of why is it broken and how do you fix it? And we don't want to have that talk. So that kind of covers the accusatory grand juries. The bigger use, especially in federal crimes, is what's called an investigative grand jury, something where the government is trying to build a case and they rely on the grand jury to help assemble the building blocks for that case. So think of an investigative grand jury kind of like a, a toolbox or a, a container of some kind. And as you get pieces of evidence, you put it in the box. You get another piece of evidence, you put it in the box. And then at the very end, your investigative grand jury can become an accusatory grand jury and have an uh, indictment issued based upon those pieces of evidence. Uh, biggest part that an investigative grand jury uses, and I, I use that term loosely because it's not the grand jury that uses them, it's the district attorney or law enforcement, is what's called a grand jury subpoena. So these are subpoenas that are issued typically by the attorney or sometimes often by the FBI or the law enforcement agency. And then at some point down the line, as kind of a perfunctory uh, way of going about it, the U.S. attorney will say, hey, we've issued this subpoena, this is what it's about, and ask the grand jury to kind of ratify that it was done in their name. Um, but essentially, these are documents that compel people to appear to testify under oath before the grand jury and the prosecutor. Uh, defense attorneys are not allowed in the room. I had a case in the Middle District involving uh, a pretty complex money laundering case, and my client decided to cooperate because the client was a fairly low-level person in the scheme. Um, I wasn't allowed in the room. I could sit outside. My client was allowed to come out and ask questions if that became necessary. But essentially, I got to sit there and wait. Um, so they will have people come in 
and testify under oath as a way of getting their story on the record, printed out, something that they can't deviate from, because if they testify differently at trial or later change their story, they can be prosecuted for perjury or for obstruction of justice if it turns out something they've said was a lie. Um, so that's one of the biggest pieces they use is having people come testify in response to these subpoenas. Uh, for example, back during uh, George W. Bush's tenure with the whole Valerie Plame issue, uh, there was a federal investigation into that. The only crimes that were alleged weren't actual crimes as we would think of them relating to that particular scandal. It was allegations of obstruction of justice by um, – I'm forgetting the guy's name, but whoever the high-level political appointee was that Bush had involved in, like, it was Andy Card? I can't remember. The only person that actually went to jail, went to jail for obstruction, not for anything involving that particular scandal. Scooter. Yes, it was Scooter Libby. Scooter Libby was the guy that went to jail. Anyhow, uh, in addition to a typical grand jury subpoena for testimony, they also have what are called a, uh, it's a subpoena ducis tecum, which is a subpoena to produce documents. And the way those work, it's the same type of deal. You're compelled to turn documents over. And typically what will happen is a U.S. attorney will go to the grand jury and say, we have issued this subpoena and we're going to have the uh, records agent, the records custodian, the police department or the FBI or whoever, keep those records until we need them at some point down the line. Are you okay with that? Uh, so these are often incredibly onerous. They request vast uh you know, arrays of documents and piece them all together. And they're typically held by the police department in perpetuity until the U S attorney feels confident that they've got a case put together. So that's the, that's the gist of the investigative grand jury. It is to get testimony under oath on the record, as well as to get documents uh, into the hands of law enforcement for the purpose of deciding whether or not someone's going to get prosecuted. And from the standpoint of defendants, they're incredibly dangerous because that testimony is going to be under oath. So it's something where you're handing over all kinds of things, but most importantly, if it looks like you're trying to conceal something or lie about something or you change your story later on, that becomes the way that the prosecutors get you. I mean, that's the main time that people end up going to jail is because of obstruction, perjury, or something similar. So in the case of Bob Mueller's folks in uh, his grand jury in D.C., that's what he's going to be doing. So they've had a grand jury operating out of Virginia for some time uh, before Mueller was appointed. So this D.C. grand jury is being set up for the purpose of compiling all of this evidence for any crimes that might have happened in the district relating to this Russia probe. And he's going to have people come in and testify. He's going to have more people turn documents over. And at the end of it all, if he decides that he wants to try and indict people, he can. I suspect what will more likely happen is they will prepare a fairly voluminous report and turn it over to Congress and expect the Congress to do some work for uh, the president or any other high-level political appointees. And then anyone further down the food chain, they'll get indictments and try and convince them to plead out in exchange for uh, cooperating. You know, they get a lesser sentence if they cooperate and snitch on other people, but basically try and roll up anyone who's committed some kind of uh, crime. But that's an overview of the grand jury system that in turn is going to wrap up this episode of Fiscal Mall. I appreciate all of you tuning in. Please make sure to join us online. We are at Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can also listen to us on Fiskamall.com. Uh, we also have our Patreon page, patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Make sure to subscribe before this coming Thursday so you can get our special bonus episode that will be coming out. And if you like what you're hearing, please make sure to leave us a five-star rating or a written review on the iTunes store. Thank you so much for listening. On behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week. Thank you.